All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Hey, I love the energy. All right, open up your Bibles with me. First Kings, chapter 3. In 2009, early 2009, um, many of you have been familiar with um, the last, you know, five, ten years of Village Church. Many of you are new, and I want to bring you in a little bit of uh, my story in this time. And uh, 2009 was a really interesting year because um, 2008, we had four full-time um, staff um, men on, um, on staff. Three of them were pastors, and there was myself. I oversaw our students and our young adults at the time. And I was 28 years old, and going into January of 2009, there were no more staff, just me, myself, in a full-time role at the church. And it was a massive transition for the church. It was very, very difficult. Um, the church had shrunk. There was uh, just very challenging. And I found myself, 28 years old, um, the only person on full-time staff, and I found myself in over my head, completely inexperienced, I'd never done anything like this, and desperately needing God to intervene and to help me. And I stepped back, and by mid-2009, I was the only elder pastor on staff at the church. By the way, Village Church, that's not a good thing, but it was what needed to happen, and it was, it was, the Lord was very faithful to us in that season. And so I found myself sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm the only elder in this church, God. And so one of the things the Lord did is he brought forth five men into my life, and they were called the Transitional Leadership Council, the TLC for short, five men who accumulated wisdom was more than I could ever possibly hope to have in like 100 lifetimes. Um, Mike Boyle, Brian Rhodes, Kirk Verhassel, Mike Hammer, and Bob Wallard, five men who God brought into my life at a time when I was um, in desperate need for wisdom and help and love, five men who loved the Lord, um, five men who were faithful to this church and faithful to me and uh, loved me and protected me. And God used these five men as a source of incredible, incredible wisdom in my life. Absolutely amazing. And I remember going through that year and thinking to myself, Jesus, if you do not help me, I, I, I literally have no idea what to do here. Um, I have ideas, but it's really just kind of pulling a rabbit out of a hat. And so I'd go to these men, and I would ask them their advice, and they would give me, and we were just a great, beautiful, um, unified team. It was an awesome experience. And there was a couple circumstances that came up, and one of them was in 2009, and we were going through this transition. And and uh, we had a group of deacons, six men, godly men, love the Lord, just good men, um, deeply, deeply respect each of them. And, and uh, I remember I had this sense that I, I should go to them and give them the option to pull out. It was a really hard season, and so I didn't know how to do that. How do you go to six men who are deacons in the church and as a 28-year-old and say, uh, do you guys want to step down? Uh, do you want to stay? I, I had no idea what to do, so I prayed. And immediately the Lord gave me an answer. And so I had this meeting with these guys, and here's what I said to them. And this is, by the way, like, not from my brain. Um, it was just the Lord putting an idea in my head. And, and so I said, look, some of you are deacons, and you should stay deacons. Some of you are deacons, and you want to be elders, maybe. And some of you are deacons, and you don't want to be a deacon. You're feeling like it's time to step off. So why don't you just go home and pray and ask God what he wants and come back, and whatever you want, um, that's what we'll do. And so five of the six um, came back, and they stepped down, and uh, that's what they sensed the Lord wanted them to do. And it was George Ellis was left as one of our deacons, and myself. We had one deacon and one elder. By the way, Village Church, is that an ideal situation? No, not at all, right? 
And so thankfully, this group, the TLC, provided this leadership, this, this transitional leadership, this accountability, and this wisdom for us. And I remember time after time after time just going before the Lord and saying, help, help, help. We got to one circumstance in 2010 after I had, it was like official that I was the lead pastor. It wasn't interim anymore. And, and so I remember sitting there, and um, we had Bible studies um, all over the church, and they were great, life-giving, um, Bible-centered, life-changing, community-building Bible studies. There was a bunch of them throughout the church. They would meet monthly or bi-monthly or something of the sorts. And I remember having this strong conviction that we needed to, to have weekly community groups. We needed to have something that was unified, that was um, under the church's leadership, that was connected to our sermons. And I remember just having this strong sense, we, we have to do this. And so we spent probably oh, just under a year planning and getting ready and bringing the church into this and had this awesome guy with me who um, was, was helping me lead it. And he comes up to me about four months before we launch, right? And he says to me, um, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm going to pull out. I've been praying about this. The church is not ready for this. This is not going to go well. And he wasn't mean-spirited. It wasn't, he's just a good man who um, was nervous about it, and that's what he shared with me. And so I remember thinking, well, that's really disappointing because I really have this strong sense that we're supposed to do this. And, and I felt all alone, and I was doubting myself. Am I making an unwise decision? Are we pushing the church farther than they're able to go? And I remember I went before the Lord, and I just said, God, you need to give me wisdom. And uh, a guy in the room, uh, probably doesn't even remember this moment, but um, went to Dave Torrey Sr., went to his house and sat on his couch for like a three-hour discussion and, and shared with him the situation. And he said, the Lord wants you to do this. Do it. And he looked at me and said, this is one of the most important things that you have done for this church. God wants you to do it. It's clear. Do it. And it was like the Lord used his wisdom, spoke into my life, and I was like, you're right. Like, we, we, like the Lord wants us to do this. This is the right thing. And when we launched our community groups, I would have been happy with seven people. And the church was about 200 people then, and 80 adults jumped into community groups right off the bat. And I was so encouraged, and I was like, wow, look, and it started to go well, and people were connecting and growing, and I saw right away. But in the midst of this, there were so many hesitations and concerns and anxieties, and will this work? I don't want to disrupt things. And you know what I wanted? I wanted to love God's people well. Do you know what Jesus is so protective of? the local church. I mean, he is passionate about it. Jesus died for the local church, loves it. And here I am, this kid, inexperienced, in over my head, like nervous about making big decisions. And I'm just trying to walk by faith. I'm trying to let my anxiety go. And the Lord would bring strategically men at different points in my life. Or sometimes I'd be opening up the word and it was just so clear. Or sometimes the Lord would put wisdom into my brain. And I was like, where did that come from? I'm not that smart. Like that, that sounded way better than anything that could come from my mind. And at every moment, I just remember, you know what, Michael, God loves you. God loves this church. God wants this church to thrive. He wants these people to become more like Christ. And he loves, and I say it's using the foolish, stupid, inexperience of a 28 or 29-year-old kid to, to, to be a part of that. I don't know why he does what he does, right? And, uh, but it was the wisdom that came from older men and the Word of God and the Spirit of God that I think was just such a beautiful experience to see and to be a part of. And many of you got to experience um, a season of just joy and unity, and, uh, and many of you have been able to be a part of community groups. And there was almost a time when those were not even going to go forward just because of discouragement. And yet it was a wise, encouraging, timely, insightful word that spoke into my discouragement and said, here's what the Lord wants. And it was, this, it, was, it was as if that person had had a conversation with Jesus where Jesus said to them, this is what God wants, tell Michael. And I just needed to hear it. Now imagine you're Solomon. Now, I, I, this is not the kingdom of Israel, right? Imagine being 12, 13, or 14 years old. 
and being given leadership over a kingdom. Wealth unimaginable. Women at your whim. An army. I mean, just imagine the weight that Solomon had to bear as a kid. And I think God loved this. I think God wanted Solomon to be in over his head. I think he wanted him to have no experience so that whatever God may have done, that kid could take no credit. Somebody give me an amen on that one, right? So some of you right now, you're in over your head. You're in over your head with your kids, with your grandkids, with your job, with your money, with life transitions. Should I take this uh, ministry position? Should I take this job? Should I transition this? What should I do? And there is just a sense of overwhelmness. And I I, I just want to encourage you. I think God loves you to be right there. Because in that moment, you have two options. Get really anxious or get on your knees. Get really anxious and fret and overwhelm or get on your knees and say, God, I need you to intervene. I need you to do something. I don't know what to do next. It's too complex. Uh, like, it just, I, I need you. I know in your brain, you know exactly what you want to happen. And I want that thing, right? And there's a million things that can be good, but I don't want just good. I want what you want. And so I think at this moment, Solomon is just a kid in over his head, more tensions than you and I could possibly imagine, all of the opportunity and wealth and power anybody could imagine, let alone having a 12-year-old. And God enters into his life and gives him exactly what he needs. Now, the subject of this morning's sermon is, say it with me, wisdom, right? So in case you read your notes. Um, And Solomon was the most wise man that has ever lived next to Jesus Christ. And open up your notes with me. Before we look at 1 Kings chapter 3, I have to define for you what wisdom is so we can be on the same page. And the Bible refers to wisdom in three general categories. You need to get these because these are very important. The first category is cultural wisdom. Very simply, this is the unique ability. I say unique because are most people wise? Say no. Most people are not wise. It is the unique ability to acquire information, make decisions, and then give advice that makes someone happy over the long haul. Like a wise person is like a sage culturally. They're able to look at all the information, acquire all of this, make good decisions based on the facts. That would be a a generally culturally speaking wise person. Now, is that a good thing? Say yes. It's a great thing. Like your ability to do that, it's unique, but that is a wonderful thing. The second kind of wisdom is worldly wisdom. This is always bad. And the Bible in 1 Corinthians 1.20 calls it the wisdom of the world. And here's what it means. Wrong thinking one believes is true. Wrong thinking one believes is true. For example, somebody says, it's just sex. It's no big deal. On a worldly level, that resonates with so many people. Yeah, it's just sex. And it's wrong thinking that one is convinced it's true. And you and I know it's not just sex. It's a powerful thing created by God uh, in the context of marriage. It's it's beautiful and good and it's meant to be reserved. And and, and so the biblical wisdom flies in the face of, of, of worldly wisdom. And biblical wisdom looks stupid. It looks foolish, right? Or here's one for you. Um, Our ancestors are chimpanzees and gorillas. And it sounds, right, to so many people, you can laugh, but it sounds so smart and rational. That's why my husband has a hairy back. It makes all the sense in the world. There are many ways to God, right, Um, so long as you're good, which makes sense on a worldly level. But then you open up the scriptures and they say, no, Jesus is the only way. And so there's this worldly wisdom that just makes sense, but it's wrong thinking that one is convinced that one believes is true. And we just hear these statements all the time. You just watch TV for 10 seconds and these people sound so smart and yet the word of God is like, no, that's actually objectively foolish. And then there's God's wisdom. 
And this is a third category. And there's three ingredients to this, and I want to read this for you. And before we get to the ingredients, listen to James 3, 15 to 18. Talking about worldly wisdom, and then it'll talk about God's wisdom. Worldly wisdom is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. But the wisdom from above, God's wisdom, is first pure, it is then peaceable, it is gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. God's wisdom has three uh, ingredients. Number one, it's discernment. This is the ability to see things as God sees them. It's the ability to see what is real and right and true according to God's mind. Believe it or not, um, this is something that many people don't have. Some of you have acquired so much wisdom simply because you have poured over the word of God so much. You are wiser than most because you know God's word, which is pure gold wisdom. Number two, not just discernment, but strategies. Not just the ability to see what is true and what is real from God's perspective. It is the ability to see the best course of action that brings God the most amount of glory. This is why it requires a supernatural intervention. Because you can always build a strategy, but here's the deal. When God intervenes and gives you wisdom, he gives you the ideas and the strategies that bring him the most amount of glory. There's always a thousand ways to do something and a thousand ways to do something good, but God knows the best way, the way that will bring him the most glory. And so sometimes you'll be sitting there and you'll have these ideas about how to move forward, and they're good ideas. And then the Lord will intervene and he will give you supernatural strategy and you will say, I don't know where that came from, but that's awesome. And if you do it, then God gets more and more glory. How many times as elders have we sat down and prayed and prayed, God, what do you want us to do when we put ideas on the table? And there's a lot of good ideas. And we just break through this and we say, okay, God, give us wisdom. And then the best ideas come to the forefront. The ideas that we pray give God the most amount of glory. But I want you to hear this. If you have the first two ingredients, you might have wisdom, but you can still be a fool. Because you might be able to discern and to see things the way God sees them. You might even be able to put together a strategy that brings God glory. But if you don't have this third ingredient, you are a fool. And here's the ingredient, action. If you don't apply the wisdom that God gives you, you might have the content of wisdom, but you yourself are a fool. You might have all the means of wisdom, but you're a fool. And the fool, trust me, is the person in Scripture that you do not want to associate. The person who knows what God wants for them to do and does not do that is the biblical fool. Now, raise your hand. How many of you would like to be a fool? Nobody? Yeah, well, one person raised their hand in the back, and that's... How about that? Um, goodness. I want you to look at your notes. First Kings chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. Solomon's incredible opportunity. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Gibeon was where the tabernacle was. This is the place of worship. The temple has not been built yet, and so this is where you would go to worship. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Last week, we talked about the details, how hard labor that was, the blood, the smell, the disgust, all that kind of stuff. I want to look at this from a different perspective. Here's what it meant when you offered a burnt offering. The burnt offering would be completely consumed by the fire. And here's what the person giving it was saying. Have 
all of me. Consume me. All I am is yours. All of me is yours. So Solomon comes to the table, and he doesn't just give one burnt offering. Regularly, he would come, and he would bring a thousand burnt offerings. And here's what Solomon is saying in these moments. He's saying, everything I am is yours. Consume me. Everything I have is yours, above and beyond. There's not enough that I could possibly give you. My whole kingdom is yours. This reign is yours. Whatever responsibility I have, it's for you. Consume me completely. That was one of the points here. That's the point of doing this. Now, how do you think God responds when one of his children comes up and they have this, we'll say, uh, transition in their heart? And they say, you know what, God, no longer am I going to be half-hearted, but I'm going to be all in. I'm going to be wholehearted. I'm going to give you my life. Do you guys think that that might please the Lord? It makes him really happy. And there are many of you in this room, you came to Christ as a kid, and you started to grow up, and you realized he wants all of me. I think that's what Solomon is getting. Solomon is having this transition in his life where he says, God gets 100% of me, and he learned it from his dad. So in verse 5, here's what it says. At Gibeon, the Lord responds to this. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and he said, ask what I shall give to you. Blank check. I am honestly so jealous of Solomon. This is amazing. Now, I'll tell you what I did this week. I sent about 50 text messages out to moms and dads at the village church, and I had them ask their kids um, the following question. If God could give you anything in the whole wide world, um, what would you ask him for? And I want to read to you some of the responses. First, I'll read the responses from um, the littler kids, and then I'll read some from the older kids. This is such a funny, funny experience. I can't read them all because I got more answers than I expected. But um, Truman, he responded, a rainbow for the whole city because I've never seen one before. (laughs) All right, Truman. Melina, right, right, right to the heart of my little girls, a gold, pink, rainbow, flying unicorn. You imagine if Solomon asked for that? Like, God would be like, okay, now we have unicorns. Um, Madison, a bloodhound puppy, Josiah, soft bunny, Jessica, a dog and a cat. Now, those are all Nate Wells' kids, and so I think Nate Wells is going to have to be buying his children animals. But I want you to hear um, uh, the answers from the uh, 10, 12, 13, 14-year-olds. I won't say their names, but I'll tell you what they said. 12 years old. No sin in the world. 10 years old. To be able to walk with God like in real life so that I can see him. Anybody else want that? Honestly, uh, I was trying to think what would David ask. And this was right in line with what I think David would have. David says it better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Like for David, the presence of God was the sweetest, greatest thing that he could possibly have. And I, I kind of think like I resonated with this answer. This might be the answer I give God. I would just like to walk with you and be with you. Like if you could actually like Jesus come back right now and this whole thing and we'll just be together forever, that would be my ideal. But like, uh, but I really resonated with this. Here's a 13-year-old. No more sin. Isn't it interesting from five years old to ten years old what happens in the experience of a kid? They go from wanting rainbows and unicorns, literally, um, to wanting sin to be gone. What does that tell you about the experience of your kids, by the way, between those ages? They're realizing life is hard, it is complex, it is difficult. And these kids step back and they're like, if we could just get rid of all sin, life would be so much better. Even the insight it takes to go to that place, to articulate it that clearly. And I'll be honest, to me, that's, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is in these little kids. Uh, that he's, they're not little, they're 
almost throughout, starting adolescence, these young men and women. Um, it's so interesting to see how um, the Holy Spirit wells up in them. Man, if I could just ask one thing, it would be that God would get rid of all sin. That's beautiful. They keep going. A uh, 13-year-old boy was clearly here last week. He said, I would ask for wisdom, right? His dad was very proud of him. Um, one girl said, if everyone could go to heaven, but if not, then at least the world leaders would go to heaven. And her point was so that they would do good and lead the entire world really well. I love that one. 10-year-old. He would like for everyone to be saved in the world and believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins and everyone to believe that he is our savior so they could be saved and go to heaven. I mean, the reality of hell that presses on this young kid's mind. I love this. And and at the same sense, it got me thinking, my oldest is six. She asked for all of America. True story. She said, I want all of America. I'm like, you can have all of America. Sure, when you go to heaven. That's, um, she asked for, um, I can't even remember the things. I shared a little bit last week. Um, she wanted animals, a cat, a horse, half of America, all of America. Uh, it's just unbelievable. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen, though, between sixth grade and her being 10 years old and saying, I want sin gone, right? I, I, I'm so sick of this world. I'm sick of the pain. I'm sick of people hurting. And I think it was just interesting. And I found myself being a really kind of proud pastor in those moments, thinking, like, yeah, Bill's church, moms and dads, like, way to go. Like, keep teaching your kids what is most and ultimately important in this world. And pray that God um, makes them love that and want that. Number two, Solomon's heart on full display, verse six. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. I mean, God, you have been so good to my dad. I mean, despite my dad's blunders and idiocy, like, he has fallen into you, and you have been so gracious to him. You have overwhelmingly blessed him. And so I, now, I'm sitting here on this throne. I am a kid. I've got more than I could possibly have. I have an army and wealth and opulence and women. I have everything at my fingertips. And you come to me, and you're like, what else can I give you? That's mind-blowing. Verse 7, it says this, And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to come out or how to go out or come in. I don't know how to lead this place. I don't know how, I'm in over my head. I'm inexperienced. I'm just a kid. Like, unless you help me, I have nothing. And again, he's right where the Lord wants him. Verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Catch this. God loves these people, and Solomon, this kid, is going to lead them. And Solomon understands this. These are your children. These are your people, and you're putting me over them. Like, they are so precious to you. The weight of what Solomon is taking over is hitting him. Here's what he says now. Here's his request. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. This literally means a listening heart. A listening heart. To govern your people, that I may discern between good and and evil. For who is able to govern your great people? Three facts about God's wisdom. Number one, God's wisdom is not accessible without God. Period. If you are not a follower of Christ, I want you to catch this. You can have cultural wisdom. You most likely have worldly wisdom to some degree. It is impossible to get God's wisdom without God. I want you to listen to what Solomon said, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is an Old Testament term. Let me just translate it for us Christians. 
Okay? Until you trust in Christ and confess your sins to him and believe in him, you will have no wisdom. Wisdom doesn't start until you get things right with God. And that happens by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't do that, you don't get wisdom. And then I want to read to you one of my favorite passages, Colossians 2, 3, and this is why. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you know why you can't have wisdom apart from Christ? Because all wisdom is in Christ, period. He is the source of all wisdom. So if you and him are not reconciled, he doesn't give wisdom. It's just that simple. So some of you, you are in impossibly complex circumstances. You are in circumstances where God's will, he has a very clear will of what he wants in these things to happen. But he will not give you his wisdom. He will not give you his knowledge. He will not give you his insight if you're not his child. So apart from you and Jesus being okay, there is no access for you to God's wisdom. You can be culturally wise. You can have people look at you and say, you have so much insight, but you will never have supernatural insight and wisdom from God that leads you to give him much glory. It is impossible without God. And so I would say this, the most wise act everyone in this room has ever made is trusting in Jesus. And I would tell you it is the first real wise decision that any of us have ever made. That before we made that decision, there might have been cultural wisdom, but before God, there was not one decision that we made that was wise. That's the first wisdom decision you and I make. Number two, God's wisdom is supernatural. It is from above. It is not natural. It, is not, it does not just come out of our brains. It is these moments where we step back and say, I see that there are a lot of options, but God's wisdom comes in and says, no, but this is the option. This is the way. This is the strategy. This is the reality. This is the insight. This is the word. This is the most true means that gives me the most amount of glory. It's supernatural. Number three, the crazier your upbringing, the more wisdom you need. Somebody give me an amen on that one. Some of you got cuckoo backgrounds, right? And uh, you need, need, need more wisdom. Uh, Solomon had a crazy background, and that's exactly what he needed. Number three, God's generous response. First Kings 3.10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked us. I mean, so God has heard the prayers of kings, um, Lord, give me more money. Give me more honor. Kill my enemies. Give me long life. Give me more money. Give me more honor. Kill my enemies. Give me long life. I mean, God is sitting in heaven and he's hearing the prayer of king after king after king. And I'll be honest, I think God's fairly nauseated with the prayers of kings. Right? And then comes this kid. This inexperienced, in over his head, overwhelmed kid. And he says, all I need is you to give me the wisdom I need to do this well. I mean, these, these are your people. They are precious to you. I mean, this is your nation. This is your money. This is your stuff. This is your resources. I could ask you for a long life, but who cares if I live long and then I have to face you for messing up your people? So Solomon's prayer, I think, just got through all the junk and all the chaos, and the Lord hears every single prayer at all times, and, and Solomon's just was so unique in this day, and the Lord was so happy with it. Guys, when you ask for wisdom, do you think that makes God happy? I think it makes him incredibly happy. Because your request for wisdom is an admission that I'm in over my head. It's too complex. It's too difficult. I need you. It's an act of faith. Every single time you go before the Lord and say, help me, it's you saying, I can't do this. I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the gospel over and over again? Help, I need you. I can't do this. God says, oh, I love when you ask for my help. I love to intervene. I mean, this is a reenactment of the gospel. Help, I'm in over my head. I need you to save me. Give me what I need to do this. Every time. I'll be honest. <clears throat> As I just... 
I'm going to try to empathize with God if that's humanly possible. Uh, I think he is nauseated at the vast majority of prayers offered up to him. Christians, non-Christians, whatever, just prayers constantly rising up to God. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Give me this opportunity. I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. And then there's the child of God who breaks through all of the insanity and all of these requests and these demands and these supplications and that if you loved me, you would. And then the child of God says, I literally just want to make you happy. I want to do what's right. Would you help me bring you glory? You know what I think God does? I think he just stops and he says, I love that prayer. That prayer. Stop right there. You, you, you just prayed that, right? I want to answer that prayer. I'm sick of giving, uh, of people asking me for more, more, more when I've given them more than they could ever possibly need, right? But that prayer, the one that wants to give me glory, I think God stops and says, that one I want to listen to. I think he stops heaven and earth when we pray, and it is for the glory of Jesus Christ. It is, it is a prayer of humility when we step back and say, I need you. Will you intervene? Not so I can look awesome, so that Jesus is made much of. These are the prayers I think God stops at and says, I'm with you. I got you. I'm going to move heaven and earth to give you what you need in that moment. There's not a moment when a believer in Jesus Christ says, help, I need you, and God says, I'm busy, right? At every moment that you need him, I mean, if you come to him with at all the right motives, he will stop heaven and earth, meet you where you're at, and come through for you in powerful ways, period. That's it. That's it. And so we step back, and I think we just break through the nauseousness that he has over all these ridiculous prayers, God-glorifying prayers, just bust through that. But we go on. Verse 11, God said to him, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Verse 12, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, if, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Here's what he does. He says, no matter what, you're going to get wealth, honor, riches. You're going to have more wisdom than you could ever possibly imagine. And if you will be faithful to me, I'll let you live a long time. So most of this is unconditional. It's going to happen, and it did happen. But if you're faithful to me like, like your father was, then I'll let you live a long, long life. Now, we'll get to the unfaithfulness later, and his life was probably cut a little bit short because of that. But I want you to hear 1 Kings 4.29, the summary of Solomon's wisdom. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other Men. Now, he's going to list some names. Apparently, people knew who these ones were, but uh, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. And I like to call this guy He-Man. I know it's probably Haman or something, but I call him He-Man. Calicol and Darda, sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Now, if you're Solomon and God so wonderfully intervenes in your life, what's your response? I think for most Christians, here's what happens. God intervenes, and then we move on in our day. But I want you to notice what Solomon does here. His response exposes the true state of his heart. And here's your options. Entitlement or gratefulness. The entitled person gets more than they deserve, and then they walk on, they don't say thank you, and they act like they deserve it. The grateful person knows they've received more than they ever deserved, and they come back and they say thank you, 
thank you, thank you. And here's how you respond when God intervenes for you in little ways and in big ways. The one word is grateful dash worship. I know it's two words, but put a dash in there. I think it becomes one word. So grateful worship. Verse 15. Solomon awoke. Remember, this was a dream. And behold, it was a dream. (laughs) Then he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the Lord and offered up more burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. So here's my encouragement to you. Number one, get on your face and beg God for wisdom. And when you do, know that he will give it to you. And do not act like an entitled kid who walks off and says, I deserve that. Tell people. Encourage people. Look what God did in my life. Make much of him. Go before him. When you worship him, pray. When you come to church and you're singing songs, whatever you do, like lift up the name of Jesus and in your brain say, thank you for that. Communion, when you have a time of silence, go through your week and think, how has God come through for me this week? Do not let them go. Do not be an entitled kid. Be a grateful worshiper of Jesus Christ because you may not be able to see it, but right now, I mean, I think about whenever I preach, this goes through my brain, the Holy Spirit in every one of you who's trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in this room as the word of God is preached and he's doing things. He's working. When you go to bed at night, when you wake up, when you open up the word of God, when you pray, when you encourage people, I mean, the Holy Spirit is active all of the time. And there is not one week that goes by where he is not ministering to you, supporting you. And if you ask him for help, what will he give you? Help. Absolutely. Every time. And so be aware. Open up your eyes. Entitled kids just are used to all the stuff that we have. We walk around with everything we have because we think we deserve it. But we're not entitled kids. We're grateful worshipers who have been given more than we could possibly imagine. And so we stop and we say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so every day you make this a habit of saying, wow, like today, I don't know how I would have got through that circumstance, but thank you. I had this funny circumstance happen with my daughter. And I won't tell you the exact question, but here's the basic question she asked me. Daddy, how is it that... um, Um, somebody can be pregnant when they're not married. FYI, the answer, there's only one word to answer, that's sex, right? So like, she's six, and I'm like, oh dear Jesus, (laughs) will you please give me wisdom right now? And I won't tell you my answer, but it was awesome, right? And it came out of nowhere, and I was like, that was sweet. Like, I got out of the room, I'm like, Jesus, like, I'm just gonna keep asking you for wisdom because apparently uh, you give it when I ask for it. And I found myself very, very, very grateful uh, for that in that moment. Uh, man, there's so much I want to read. So here's what I want to do with you. Um, I'm going to stop preaching, and uh, we're going to finish this next week. Um, I, can you believe it? I put more content in than I can handle in 35 minutes. I know you guys are all absolutely <laughs> shocked by that. I want to close um, our time with James 1, 5 to 8, and uh, love this. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach or without hesitation or without even really, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, if you ask, uh, you ask me for it, I'll give it to you, like totally, generously, overwhelmingly, okay? Without reproach. Ask him and it will be given him. And it goes in verse six and it says, but let him ask in faith. Like, trust him. Believe him. Don't say, well, I don't know if you really will, if you really can, but like, I really kind of need some wisdom here. Like, the whole point is, believe him. Like, you have a God who the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, so you go to him and you ask him. And so this, but let him ask in faith, with, no, with faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts, they're like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But for the one who comes to him, 
I'll say it like this, with a mustard seed of faith. You come to him with just the littlest amount of faith, and you say, please, please give me wisdom. Not so that I can be more awesome, but so that the name of Jesus can be more lifted up and clearly seen in my actions. Here's what he'll do. He'll move heaven and earth. He will get you everything you need to give you the wisdom that he wants you to have. So next week, we're going to answer a question. How do I get wisdom? And we'll spend all next week talking about that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. We are so short-sighted. Our brains are so limited. Our capacity to see the future is not even existent. There are so many good things and yet one or two great things. And our ability to see that, um, we just don't have it. And so God, here's what we need. We need you to intervene. We need you to give us supernatural wisdom, not just cultural wisdom that assesses information, but wisdom from above that tells us what are the ways and the strategies that are the most Christ-exalting. What is true, what is real from your perspective. But God, we also don't want to just be people who have discernment and strategy and then act like a fool. We truly want to be wise. And so God, there's a gap in our hearts, the gap between where we are and where we need to be to grow in wisdom. And so God, would you change our hearts? Would you do heart surgery? This is your jurisdiction. We have tried changing our own hearts. It's impossible. So would you do what only you can do? Would you not just intervene with strategy and discernment, but would you intervene with a heart change so that we can live wisely for the glory of Jesus Christ? So God, I have such high expectations of you. Every heart in this room that is resonating with that prayer, God, would you grant us wisdom? I have full confidence the Holy Spirit right now is intervening and is working and is going to expose that wisdom that is from you. So we thank you, and what better way to respond to all of your goodness and graciousness and the wisdom that you've given us than to be like Solomon in worship. We love you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.